You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining me on the podcast today is Luke Groman, who is the founder and president of Forest for the Trees. Luke is a well-known writer, entrepreneur. Um, his research and his perspective on macro is particularly good, and that's why I was so happy to have a chance to speak to him today. Uh, today, we're recording this Friday, February the 25th. Uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Was it yesterday or two days before? I don't know. Space time doesn't really work in my head right now. Uh, you should know that this will release in about a week, so portions of the Russia conversation here might feel a little bit dated, but because this conversation was so focused on really broader and more fundamental structural things, I thought it was okay to wait to put it out on our normal cadence. Um, thank you so much for Luke for agreeing to come on, even though it's been an incredibly busy couple of days. Uh, listeners, please, as always, check us out at perchperspectives.com if you'd like to learn more about the services we provide, you wanna sign up for our free newsletter. Uh, and if you haven't already, please share this podcast with all of your friends, family, anybody you think might wanna know more about what's going on in this increasingly crazy world that we live in. Okay, that's all for me. I'm gonna go crack open a bottle of wine because it has been a week. Uh, take care of each other and I'll see you out there. Cheers. All right, Luke, there's there's absolutely nothing going on in the world for us to talk about today. I don't know how we're gonna fill this podcast. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, Jacob. It's, uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately there is there is a lot going on, like you said. Yeah, it's, uh, it's depressing and um, what can you say? I, I try to maintain my sense of irony and sense of humor because that's the only way I've been able to stay sane in this business for over a decade. So I, I try and take it as it comes. Um, how about the first question I'll throw at you? It, we're recording on Friday, February 25th. It's 3.20 p.m. Central here in the United States. Um, maybe the, the first question I'll throw at you is how do we disaggregate kind of what's happening in the markets that is Russia-Ukraine related and then just what was already happen happening before all the Russia-Ukraine stuff popped off because I feel like a lot of people are making assumptions that what they're seeing in the market is related to Russia-Ukraine. I'm not. I'm sure there was a knee-jerk panic reaction, but I'm not sure how much effect that's actually going to have, kind of going forward here and going into the Fed hiking. So help help us pull those two things apart if you can. It's a great question. It's something I've been wrestling with in a few markets. I've been wrestling with it in the treasury market market watching yields rising uh and watching uh, i've been wrestling with it in the gold market uh where you have seen obviously gold uh rising and gold acting in a way that is very different one of the big things in macro to watch for is is when correlations break down right so it's over the last uh really two three months um one of the biggest correlations of the last several years or so of at least and, and really long-term correlation has been gold and u.s real rates right so the 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 after inflation rate of uh, after inflation rate of interest on on treasuries and uh that correlation between u.s real rates and gold has broken down uh in a major way uh where to the point where for example a good metric uh, of a chart that we've used uh, has been global negative yielding debt uh, I, I, this is nominal, so I'm mixing it a little bit. Global negative yielding debt went from, call it, $14 trillion to $4 trillion in the span of a month. <laughs> um, and that would have implied a, a price of gold falling three, four, five hundred dollars $500. Uh, and instead, gold went up 100 bucks. And so 
you know, that issue I'm watching is okay in the context of what we're watching is that was that all Russia Ukraine premium was that gold calling bullshit on the Fed, uh, <laughs> which up until a couple of days ago was really what I thought most of it was. Um, so they, there's been a few key markets I've been watching for. I think, and there's an interplay to this. I, to me, the biggest thing that nobody is talking about macro pre Ukraine situation, post Ukraine going, uh, go, going, going kinetic, um, has been the U.S. fiscal situation, mm-hmm. and simply, there's virtually nobody looking at the U.S. fiscal situation, the U.S. balance of payments, uh, which never mattered for the last fifty years, forty years certainly. Uh, but they matter now. And as we're seeing this evolving multilateral system, as we're seeing global central banks not buying enough treasuries relative to our issuance, all this, there's, it's hard to disaggregate. You know, we're still in sort of the, the, the fog of war, literally. Mm-hmm. What we're watching in financial markets that is, um, you know, is, 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 was the stock market up 700 points today and, and up yesterday because there's a flight of global capital to the U.S., or is it because the Ukraine situation is going to put to push off the rate hikes, um, or is it because you know the fiscal situation is going to go critical as a result of this, and you, the Fed's going to actually have to renew QE or expand QE? There's a lot that you right now, as we sit here, uh, you know, today, that it's still very uh, difficult to disaggregate what's what. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So why don't why don't I start with um, you talking about how gold was calling bullshit on the Fed? And obviously, if we'd had this podcast even 36 hours ago, Thursday morning, when gold was up like two and a half percent or flirting on three percent right after the news rush went in, we might be thinking very differently. And I, I think you've seen that kind of ping pong in financial media in general. But um, do you think that gold is calling bullshit on the Fed? Do you think that the Fed is going to have to be more dovish than people are expecting? Because I that 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 sentiment seems to be oscillating all over the place just based on the news cycle every day at this point. I, I, I think it still is. I agree. It's still oscillating. I think if you zone out a little bit, it's helpful, more helpful to really get it a little bit more context. And, and Mm -hmm. so if you look at, for example, the chart of, excuse me, gold over the long dated treasury bond, right? So if you chart GLD over TLT, because the long-dated treasury bond is the, uh, the the biggest primary reserve asset competitor of gold. Um, an interesting pattern emerges, which is since March of 2020, uh, gold has outperformed the long-dated treasury by 55%. Hmm. Since early 2016, gold has outperformed the long-dated treasury bond by 75%. Now, in theory, these two things should be moving right along together. Um, and there was an interview that Charles Gav gave um, uh, about uh, three or four years ago where he made the point that if you're watching if you're watching what China and the U.S. are doing, um, gold is really a key pivot. If you watch what China's doing as sort of using and bringing gold back into the system as some sort of neutral reserve asset, Russia bringing gold back into it as a neutral reserve asset very clearly. Um, if the price of gold is rising, then sort of China and Russia are winning or gaining influence. And if the price mm. of gold is falling, the U.S. is. And so I think it's 
it, it's hard to disaggregate the noise and the short run about what gold's telling us, especially because it's such a a weird market, a manipulated market. It's got massive amounts of paper. It's such a political market uh, for some, in part for 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 partly because of what we were just saying. But when you take a step back and you look and you say, "Wow," you know, after falling after the GLD over TLT fell from 2011 through 2015, 2016. Uh, it has been a steady up and to the right, you know, chart where GLD is gaining versus TLT, and in particular, it's been very pronounced after the COVID crisis, which I think is really interesting. Then, in terms of making it much more relevant to this discussion of is it calling bullshit or is it not? The fact that it's up fifty-five percent against the long bond in two years. Um, I think it is calling bullshit a bit. I think it's starting to say, hey, there's a problem here. There's an inflation problem. They're not going to be able to raise rates uh, as much as they think to fight inflation. And and I think that's right. I think ultimately, when you look at the fiscal situation, um, I I, I think the Fed's much more cornered than than most people realize. Well, zero in on that, because I I think you're right that people have kind of forgotten about that. So talk about why you think the, the Fed has backed itself into a corner probably of its own making, you would probably say, but w- what is the corner and, and how much room do they have to tighten if, if any at all, or, or are they just going to kind of realize immediately they, that, that they made a mistake if they try and tighten too fast? So it's, it's, it's a mistake of their making, but it's really, you know, they are sort of, you know, cleaning up the messes of the people in Washington, right. Of the politicians. Um, uh, or, or of the people that are explicitly politicians. I've always said the Fed, the Fed, Fed is politi- are politicians too, but they're not, they're unelected. Um, it's a multi, it's a multi-prone problem that we've made for the last 20 to 50 years, a series of very, um, uh, poor, uh, policy choices, whether you talk about economic policy choices, trade policy choices, uh, geopolitical policy choices, all of which, or a number of which, have led to, um, you know, look, we, if we borrow a bunch of money and spend it on the Eisenhower Highway system, great. If we do it, you know, if we if we borrow a bunch of money and spend it on um, uh, education or taking care of our old people or taking care of our veterans, great. Uh, when you spend $6 trillion uh, over 20 years going into the Middle East to secure, you know, China's Nothing. oil for it in Iraq, yeah. uh, that is not a good use of money. And so... In the short run, these poor policy choices, because we're the United States, because we've been a unipolar power for 30 years, because it's the dollar, in the short run, these, these, these mistakes, these major errors have no cost. Um, but the longer you go on and the more you keep compounding them uh, with financial policy errors, right, instead of letting people take pain in 08, you paper over it. Instead of letting people take pain in the financial markets in 2020, arguably by 2020, it was a special situation and it was too late to be able to let people take pain. But 98, they should have taken pain. 94, they should have taken pain. 87, they should have taken pain. They never did. Uh, when you have, uh, you know, you had 70 million baby boomers born in, between 46 and 64. Stood to reason that 70 years later, they were going to turn 70. Um, <laughs> and, you know, any, you know, the actuarials would have told you that. Any sixth grader with a calculator would have told you that. There was never the political courage to reform entitlements um, in a necessary way, uh, all that time. And it got to a point now where it's too late. So it's, and then, you know, the trade policy with China, trade policy with NAFTA. So you've done this sort of unique combination of igno- uh, bad 
or bad foreign policy, uh, where we borrowed a bunch of money unproductively, uh, lack of political courage to reform some decent programs in terms of the entitlements uh, in, a, in a useful way, uh, a uh, bad financial policy of bailing out bad investments over and over, and then bad trade policy where we basically offshored our industrial base and, and increasingly financialized our economy so that the key driver to consumption became uh, rising asset prices. And so all of this sort of feeds on itself. And, and, and I think it's important to highlight is in terms of background context, because it leads us to the point where we are, where, where we are now with U.S. debt to GDP at 122%, with U.S. deficits, they're starting, that, that's, the Fed has never tightened rates with debt to GDP that high. We're in uncharted territory. U.S. deficits as a percentage of GDP came out of this year at about 12 percent. Uh, we've never tightened rates uh, with it with it more than two or three percent of GDP. Again, uncharted territory. Uh, since 3Q14, foreign central banks have only bought in total 88 billion dollars in treasuries at the while issuance of treasuries in that time. The U.S. total debt has gone up 11 trillion. So foreign central banks have bought about nine percent of our treasury debt in aggregate over the last eight years. By way of comparison, the prior 12 years, they bought about 55% of it. Uh, instead, they've bought about a quarter trillion dollars of physical gold, these central banks, since 2014, which again, kind of ties into the point before. And then the last point is, is because of all of the, the uh, aforementioned, the United States is entering a tightening cycle with U.S., uh, what I call true interest expense, right, which is Treasury spending, which is which is interest, and then some of the stimulus stuff that's in helping inflate uh, uh, GDP, uh, plus um, uh, the entitlement pay as you goes. I mean, right now we're paying about two point seven trillion dollars per year just for health and human services and for uh, Social Security. Tax receipts are about four trillion, but they are very inflated by the inflation and the booming economy. We grew nominal GDP almost twelve percent last year, so. Um, right now, just the true interest expense is, a, is about a hundred percent of tax receipts and tax receipts are highly sensitive to asset prices rising and continuing to rise ad infinitum based on the policy decisions of particularly in trade, uh, that we made, uh, over the last 30, 40 years. And so you've got sort of this, um, doom loop they've put themselves in where they need asset prices to rise to generate the tax receipts to cover the promises they've made to the baby boomers but they want to take the froth out of the asset markets uh because it's starting to spur inflation but they need that inflation to cover and so that is this fiscal problem that um is not is not appreciated and again it all ties back to foreigners aren't buying enough of our treasuries um uh, foreign central banks foreigners um, and and we're issuing all this debt because again we didn't have the political courage to reform some of the, some of this stuff. Um, we made some bad policy choices in terms of foreign policy, and so it's now all here and it's now all gotten so big. It's sort of like unfortunately like a you know like like a cancer patient right where you catch it in stage one, stage two, early. There's a lot of treatment options. There's you, you, your chances of surviving are very good, and the longer you wait and the worse it gets before you show up at the doctor your chances of survival and your and, uh, and your treatment options shrink and unfortunately that's kind of what we have done i mean it's a again 
it's not our politicians' fault. It's a true. It's a human thing. It's a democratic, you know, <laughs> an elected government. You're going to have these things. Any government's going to have these things. That's why we have these long cycles, these long debt cycles, where we have them. What I'm saying is, is we're in this sec, this 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 part of the long debt cycle, um, and there's some things happening that it's been a long time that that, that since they've happened. Yeah. Um, is there any silver lining? Is there any way to sweep it under the rug? Is the, is the patient terminal? Is it stage four? Is it stage three? Can we zap it with some radiation and maybe knock it back into stage 1.5? I mean, or, or are we really just in this doom loop and it's just going to continue to spiral until you get some kind of political revolution? I, I use that. I mean, that happens in the U.S. It's usually not violent in the U.S. It happens with the progressive revolution with Teddy Roosevelt sure. or the New Deal. Are, are sure. we just sort of or Reagan? I think I think qualifies as that sort of revolution. Is it things just have to get that bad, and then one party has to get swept in and make those changes that you're talking about, or do do we have some room here? Can we is there can we buy some time before the crisis hits us in the face? We've been trying to buy time. Um, I always like to say that. You know, it's it's not a Democrat or Republican thing. Um, uh, you know, compound interest is undefeated all time against empires and governments, right? It it is it never sleeps, it never stops growing, um, and so really, I won't say it's terminal. I mean, it's not gonna it's not gonna kill us. It it really, but what it does do, it is so far along. I do think it's stage four in this metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what your choice really is then is. Um, you know, it's really, it's really devalue or default slash restructure, right? It's, it's, it's either, listen, the defense budget's 800 billion, it's 20% of tax receipts, it's got to go to 400 billion. Well, timing on that ain't real great, right? I mean, that's not a good look normally. It's a hard thing to do normally, but you're not going to show up now with what's going on and say, we're going to cut the defense budget in half. Okay. So that's off the table. Uh, Entitlements, you know, you're spending 2.7 trillion a year on on just health and human services and social security you're spending you know 210 billion dollars a year alone in veterans affairs now i'm not i'm not recommending we cut that we don't do enough for those guys uh with that said that 210 billion when we went into iraq was the size of the entire federal government deficit just to show you how that in the long run bad policy choices have very severe costs yeah. uh so can we can we politically cut entitlements no probably not no way. not not for any you know not in the time scale we need which is like like by june um or you know we need to cut treasury spending and and rates are zero right and quite frankly we're actually going to make that worse by raising rates um just by way of comparison when the fed last raised rates this true interest expense number that i measure was about 65 percent of tax receipts in 2018 and it went up by 17%. So it went from 65% to 82% by 2018, just on the two and a quarter percent rate increase, because you, you saw a softening in, in, in uh, very interest. You know, we're a financialized economy. Your tax receipts are very sensitive to interest rates. So tax receipts fell or weakened sequentially, and interest expense rose. And so you went from 65 to 82. Well, we're starting this one at like 100. Um, so we're actually going the wrong way in interest. So where it all goes to is, is either, you know, as they tighten rates, can they? Yes. Uh, I think they'll do one, maybe two. I think we're going to continue to see the volatility we've been seeing. But ultimately, I don't think they're going to be able to go for very long before they're faced with a choice, which is, do you want to miss coupon payments on treasuries? No. 
Do you want to skip payments on entitlements to the boomers? No. Three, do you want to, um, uh, you know, do you want to uh, cut defense spending by 100 or 200 billion in the middle of these uh, stuff with Russia and China? No. Okay, option four is, hey, Fed, you pick up the phone, you call Powell, and you say, money printer, go burr, and he pays for it, and the release valves the dollar, and the release valves inflation. And I think that is the big surprise this year uh, is, and it's the thing that nobody's talking about virtually, which is the Fed has to, is going to have to cut rates, print money into an inflation spike because of the fiscal situation. And this is something... Emerging markets see all the time. It's 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 a balance of payments, currency issue. Um, it's stuff you know the Israelis saw in the late seventies and early eighties, um, and I think that's just where we're going. That's not a very heartening thought. It, it occurs to me um, um, you're not using the language that uh, a, a, a Marxist would, but when you listen to what China, how China describes the United States and how it's reached late state capitalism. Um, you know, this is some of what their argument is that the United States has become so bloated that China really doesn't have to do anything. It just has to worry about its own house. And eventually materialism will take its toll with the United States and China just has to be strong enough when that happens. I also, I, I wonder, did you see uh, on CNN when the air raid si- sirens were going off in Kiev and they cut to a really unfortunate commercial where it was, it was Applebee's <laughs> and like chicken wings and something like oh, that no, in, really? in the middle of the air raid sirens. That also oh, made me think late stage capitalism. Um, but where where do you put China on the map here? Because they seem to be loosening right now already. They actually kind of tightened and took some pain, dare I say, earlier on. So where do you think they slot in here? Does this make you more bullish about China from a macro perspective? Or are their problems kind of serious enough to scare you away from that? I, 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 I think they are in better shape. Um, I don't... It's always hard, right, just given some of the structural issue, issues there. But it's been interesting, and this is, I think, a warning sign that's being largely ignored still uh, by most on Wall Street, which is in, in the context of what we just discussed, which is China's been loosening, and the Fed's been tightening, and the yuan's been rising against the dollar. And that is, you know, when I talked earlier about when major correlations and macro break, you have to pay attention. That's a huge one. That is a violation of, of rule number one in, in sort of how the dollar has traded. Hmm. For the last, you know, for everyone's career that's probably 70 and under on Wall Street, FX trades on relative rates. And if the Fed's tightening and the PBOC's loosening, the yuan's going down against the dollar. And the exact opposite thing is happening now. And people say, well, how can that happen? And, and how can that happen is, is that there's a second component to relative FX rates that's always been there, which is balance of payments. It's relative FX rates and it's balance of payments, right? When you have a really bad, when, when, you're, when you're Turkey and you're a twin deficit nation and your currency starts falling, what do you do? You raise rates, right, to defend the currency. Uh, and if you don't raise rates enough in Turkey, the lira still falls, right? They're cutting, so, they're cutting rates. <laughs> they're cutting rates, right? And then it really falls, right? So... The U.S. is a twin deficit nation that's never mattered like it mattered for Argentina or Turkey or the handful of other twin deficit nations around the world because we have the reserve currency. Yet here we are in 2022 with this pile of problems we just discussed that I think are in stage four, and the Fed is raising and the PBOC is loosening, and the dollar's falling against the yuan. 
And you know, you you, you it's it's you probably put an asterisk next to it because the yuan is not freely floating and and all sort of the things that people would say. And I, and I think those are valid, right? I think those are valid. But still, I think there is a major signpost there of where we are on this, how acute this issue is, and how the dollar is likely to trade if slash when the Fed is forced by compounding interest, you know, and those those four choices we laid out earlier, that Powell has to basically print the difference, um, how, it, how it's going to trade. So when I think of it that way, then yeah, I think China's probably a good place to have some incremental capital. You know, some uh, a friend of mine pointed out uh, a series of charts to me this week that boggled my mind, which was, um, if you look at on a two-year basis, a three-year basis, and a 10-year basis, Chinese government bonds have outperformed U.S. Treasuries. Mm. Stunned by that. Stunned by that. I, 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 you know, feel like I'm pretty good touch with all this stuff going on. And you look at it, you go, "Wow, no!" And and that's nobody's noticed that. So I think when you're seeing this evolution towards multi-currency, I, I've centered it on the energy markets. We've very clearly seen a move where the marginal oil barrel, marginal uh, uh, BTU of gas, is is trading in euro or in yuan no longer solely dollars. Um, when you start moving commodities to multi-currency, you're going to start having currencies trade more on balance of payments and less on relative interest rates. I think that has started to happen. I think the, me- the mechanism of that is that basically everybody prints money for commodities and then everybody prints money for deficits. And so um, for us, we've got the biggest deficits because of how how the, the virtue of how the system has worked for 50 years, right? It was, you know, the system worked as we run all these deficits and you guys make all this stuff and uh, we buy all this stuff from you and 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 the deficits are sort of a, a defining factor or function of, of the system. The system's evolving and now those are needing to be financed by our Fed because the foreigners aren't anymore. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, broadly interested in assets outside the US. I think China will do well. I think there's, you know, you can make a case some some things in Europe. Again, this is all setting all the war stuff aside, which is a very big set aside. Um, I probably would have said a lot more aggressively, yes, uh, 36 hours ago. Um, you know, Europe, I think is, you know, just basically ex-US uh, starts to get interesting as we get closer and closer to this moment where the Fed's going to have to, I think, grow their balance sheet into an inflation spike because of the U.S. fiscal situation. Yeah, I, I was bullish Latin America even before the war. And it seems to me that Latin America, again, has a lot of the characteristics of markets that can deal with this because they're far away from the mayhem. They have options for energy that are not Russia. Uh, a lot of them are exporting commodities, which seem to be going up in price. Is, is, do you think that's right or am I missing something? No, I think that's right. That's a great point. I mean, if you look, I saw a chart the other day that it's it's paradoxical, right? For we our whole career, but it ties back to this break in correlation. Our whole careers, the developed markets have had positive real rates, and the emerging markets have generally had negative real rates. And it's the exact opposite. Brazil has very high positive real rates. Uh, a number of these Latin American countries have positive real rates. They have uh, benefit from commodity prices, um, and so uh, and and positive balance of payments. So it's like all check, check, check. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, let's lean into the war a little bit. I, I'm actually delighted and surprised that we made it 26 minutes uh, without having <laughs> to talk about the war. Um, a lot's going to probably change in the couple days that it takes to edit this and kind of get it up. But um, wh- why don't I ask you first, like, did did you see the war coming? I, I didn't. I was 70% no invasion. So I'm eating my humble pie here constantly and, and switching my views. But 
A, did you see the war coming? And B, where do you think it goes from here? And, and what are the specific things in the markets you're looking at as a result? No, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I, I thought, uh, I didn't think, I didn't think he would go. I thought that he had, um, enough leverage and enough dissuasion that he was, that he was making his point. So I was surprised, uh, by it. Uh, with that said, when I started sort of putting together on Wednesday a report I was working on, where I looked at, you know, to me, and this isn't a blessing of it, but just simply looking at it, I'm, I'm going to try to be as sensitive to the real humanitarian, humanitarian disaster that's begun and is likely to continue. From a pure strategic standpoint, when you look at, I think, realities in what is happening in peak cheap oil and commodities. Um, and that's to say, if you take Russia's oil out of the mix, um, let me back up. So we, it's been harder and harder to find more, uh, more oil for cheaper price. It ha- it's basically stopped happening. Yeah. The, the incremental oil barrel is getting more and more expensive. So that's peak cheap oil. So that's a reality. When you then also layer on the U.S. fiscal reality, and the Western sovereign reality more broadly, what I think, and I think part of the reason he has been as aggressive as he has, uh, surprising me uh, in hindsight, uh, is that with peak cheap oil being a reality, and with the U.S. fiscal situation being as precarious as it is, with the EU fiscal situation as precarious as, as it is, or the debt situation more broadly there, I guess, if you take Russian oil out of the mix of global supplies, oil's going to two, three, four hundred dollars a barrel. I don't know, whatever the price is. Those are all wild ass guesses, but mm-hmm. but it's it's going high enough that it will abs without a doubt put the global economy into a very severe recession. And a very severe recession with what I just described before, with US tax or US true interest expense already at around 100 percent of tax receipts, your tax receipts are going to collapse with gdp and when that happens again you're going right back to okay you cut in treasuries you cut right so he's got this unique period of time where the only thing we can really hit that's really going to hurt them is oil and gas and commodities and we can't take that away there's not a darn thing we can do and because if we do that we're immediately going to put the u.s treasury market at risk we're going to put the u.s stock market at risk the u.s debt market you're going to see global markets and global economies collapse Mm -hmm. uh and i think he understands that um and so it's um it's a uh it's a it's an application of leverage um that i that i can see why he's doing it it's awfully short-sighted, though, don't you think? Because by d- I'm I'm I've been reflecting more and more about what the Chinese did with rare earth elements in Japan in 2010, which was you know they really had Japan had a stranglehold over Japan because Japan was so dependent on importing those rare earths from China. And then I forget exactly what Japan did that pissed the Chinese off, but they pissed the Chinese off, and the Chinese said, "All right, we're taking our rare earths and we're going home. You can't have them." And it was very painful for Japan for a couple of years. But in the last decade, they've gone to 90% dependence on China to 58. And they'll probably be below 50 in a couple of years. And they're going to, and you know, the rare earths market, it's it's coming back. And you've got other countries that want to refine and mine and things like that. So it, it seems like it's a short-term benefit. Sure, oil prices are high now. Russia has all the leverage in the world. But you just ensured that the Europeans are now going to probably double their spending on renewables and hydrogen and LNG and anything else they can get their hands on. 
so that they don't have to deal with this in five years time so that if Putin comes knocking for something else, they can say, no, here, here are your sanctions. We'll kind of go right at you. Um, so I, I have trouble with, with getting into Putin's mind because it feels so short-sighted in that sense. But, you know, maybe I underestimated the extent to which Ukraine is that important to him. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I did, uh, for sure. Um, you know, with that said, you know, I was rereading the other day, you know, his, his speech from February, 2007 in Munich, right. Where mm. this isn't exactly a new demand, right. He's been kind of saying, look, we, you know, you promised us you weren't going one inch east of Germany in 89 and you've gone hundreds of miles east and we don't like it. And, you know, you didn't like it when, you know, we put missiles in Cuba and, 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 it, it, it it's it's been on you know his complaints whether valid or not have certainly been on the tape for 15 years yeah. uh, as it relates to that and that's why I, part of the reason i was surprised why they didn't you know why they uh why they actually got as aggressive as they did in terms of of short-sighted you know i for me i i think i think it really I think we may look back at what just happened as a real watershed event where it's not just about trying to get a short-term outcome. I think there are a number of things that have come into place on one hand, and I think there's some probably some other factors that are forcing factors for they and for China that they may need to act faster than they might have otherwise would have otherwise liked to. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, they're winning. They're they're you know, they're sort of, you know, <laughs> just playing along, like you said, about sort of China just letting the thing sort of, you know, compounding interest do what it's going to do. Um, I, I think they are, um, what's the right, I, I, I think we just saw the beginning of a major re-rating or a major relative re-rating of global uh, power. Um, and I think we're watching it in real time. When you watch, you know, our inability to, really sanction Russia at all. And in fact, go out of our way today. I don't know if you saw uh, Dalip Singh's press conference. We are specifically avoiding the energy. Like They're almost scared to sanction energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there might be something much broader happening here. I thought it was very fascinating, uh, much broader goal here, tying back to, I think, what the real goal is there, which is They've got to move to a neutral reserve asset before the the U.S. dollar starts really tanking, right? They want to move away from the dollar. So when you saw today, other headline came across on Bloomberg that the Chinese banks were actually cutting dollar uh, funding for uh, Russian commodities. And you go, holy cow, that's a really big deal. And then you read the article and they go, there's still they're still lending in yuan. In yuan, yeah, exactly. And so it looks, all, you look at that, you know, I put it to a guy who's been very, very high-level veteran global energy trader, 30-plus years experience, ties in, tied in with um, some, you know, at very high level with global energy players. And I said to him, he goes, make no mistake, when they say some clients can get lent in yuan, everyone that wants to do the deal in yuan will get done in yuan. He goes, it's, it's you know, so I to me, it feels a little bit like there's this broader recognition of, hey, we got them. Like, let's 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 push this dollar issue. I mean, you go back to Obama in 2015 saying we can't kick the, you know, we, we can't do these Iranian sanctions because it puts the U.S. dollar's reserve status at risk. You know, three days later, Kerry said the same thing, right? And so 
you know, Jack Lou talked about it a few days after that. So when I get three senior cabinet members talking about the risk to dollar reserve status in a 10-day period in 2015, I don't think they were sitting around at the White House bar talking about that. I think there was a talking points memo mm. within the context of the Iran negotiation that was saying, listen, if we do this, this is what the other parties have threatened with, uh, what they will do. And when I bring that forward to today, to we promise we're not going to touch energy like we're seeing out of the U.S., out of the Europeans, when we're seeing Russia or China going, hey, you know what, we're not going to do dollar, but you can move it all to yuan. Um, it just feels a little bit like the goal here is not, hey, you know, I, the immediate goal, yeah, get off my border. I don't want you in NATO. I don't want any of you on my border in NATO. Do you understand me? And I sure as heck don't want nukes on my border. But I think that is just a forcing function of a much bigger move where it's sort of like, okay, this is where it's going to happen. This is where it's going to happen. And you're seeing this machinery, this de-dollarization machinery, this move to, um, hey, we've got the oil leverage, we've got the debt leverage, and let's 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 go. You know, as long as those two stick together, Russia and China, setting aside some very real uh, uh, logistical issues as it relates to moving energy demand from west to east, which you know can create a lag. Um, they they sort of you know i don't know how much better their leverage is ever going to get to do this particularly now that you know the us has sort of woken up post trump to what's happening here yeah i guess so but it's i don't know the what i've been joking about the last couple of days is that you know congratulations to to mr putin he's turned russia from a great european power into china's gas station uh, which is kind of you know it goes to your point about the about the yuan i mean china's going to charge a, a premium for importing now all of this Russian wheat and importing all of this Russian energy with, that the pipelines don't actually aren't set up to work for, and you're going to have to build through mountains and terribly horrible um, territory for building infrastructure. So, um, but I, you know, it's it's yeah, I, I think Russia's actually put itself in a fairly difficult situation, kind of towards the end of the decade. But there's no doubt here that in the in the next couple of years, um, they're going to be firmly in control. Uh, we we talked about oil. I can't, and and you already mentioned Iran. Um, does the Iran nuclear deal, which seems to be imminent now here on February twenty fifth, kind of give? I, I've been more worried about natural gas and coal rather than oil because I think Iran's coming back on the market, and Libya, knock on wood, seems to be kind of holding steady for now. Do you do you see it the same way? Is is natural gas and coal also more scary for you, or are you more focused on the oil and the what could happen on the upper side of that? You know, I've been more focused on the oil side. I'm not as well versed on on sort of the different the natural gas, other than sort of the big, you know, the big numbers for natural gas, right? Where Germany's whatever sixty percent of their gas, fifty five right, coming from there, and the Nord Stream two thing getting cut off, et cetera, is not not helping them. Um, yeah, it, it's it's I've been much more focused focused on the oil side. Yeah. Um, well, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, we, we talked about gold and oil and commodities, all sorts of things. And, uh, it's, uh, maybe we should pat ourselves on the bat for not talking about crypto until <laughs> 37 minutes in as well. Uh, and Bitcoin has also been, I mean, we don't have a lot of history with Bitcoin, but it seems to me that Bitcoin has also been doing weird things in the context of everything that's going on. Um, and I'm, I'm personally more interested in, you know, the Ethereum's and ADA's of the world, but tell me where you're at with, with Bitcoin and crypto and how that story kind of plays in here. I, I also, by the way, I think it's super interesting that, um, you know, I, I think with all the Ukraine-Russia stuff going on, everybody sort of missed that Russia looks like it's banning cryptocurrency or doesn't want anyone to hold 
Bitcoin going forward. And the, the Central Bank of Russia, you know, was, was talking about that last month and they've got laws kind of circulating their way through this month. So, you know, concerns there from Russia about their monetary policy and currency. So I just I just threw a bunch of a bunch at you stream of consciousness. Where where, where do you think Bitcoin goes into this picture that you're painting for us? Yeah, I, I, I think ultimately Bitcoin goes a lot higher uh, simply because, again, the reserve currency of the world has a fiscal problem that it's going to have to resolve by balance sheet expansion, in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. And you, you, to me, Bitcoin is, 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 is not a bubble. I think it's the last functioning smoke alarm, really. <laughs> um, it's, it's, you know, it's the last free market standing, right? Bonds aren't a free market. Gold's not a free market. Equities really aren't a free market. Like they, around the world, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're all sort of interfered with to some extent by global central banks and, and governments. Um, and, and I think Bitcoin is maybe a little, but not, it's, it's, it's a relatively pure market and it's interesting, right? It's volatile as hell. And it, and it's been a very good leading indicator of excess liquidity and liquidity withdrawal. Um, so when we were at, you know, 70,000 down to, you know, whatever, um, you know, it dropped pretty quickly in November and into December. It's like, uh Oh, here comes volatility for the market and here for the broader markets. And sure enough, sort of two weeks later, it all showed up. So I think it's a, I think it's a broader liquidity measure. It's an early sort of early warning. I think, um, you know, I've seen, I, I, I saw the Russia crack down on it. I saw them maybe try to reverse a little bit headlines, but I don't know. Um, you know, it's weird, right? The, the, the Americans almost have like a love-hate relationship with it. It's like, hey, we hate Bitcoin, the, you know, as, as any politician tends to. Uh, but then it's like, hey, people are sending Bitcoin to, to Ukraine. So that's, you know, is it is it good? Is it bad? It, you know, it sort of depends on, you know, who it's going to, right? It's like, you know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's well that you can use it to, to move currency well that's okay in this case it's not good in this case um i think it's going a lot higher i think ultimately the fiscal situation of the west um was so precarious going into this that basically if anything went wrong you're gonna need the fed to get back into uh you know growing its balance sheet again and something's gone horribly wrong uh, supply chains were supposed to get better. Supply chain, you know, they weren't getting better to start with. Forget about it. Um, and that's assuming we don't do, you know, you know, I saw late today, the Germans talking about maybe kicking Russia out of SWIFT. Who knows? Um, so if anything goes wrong, the, the options are really default restructuring or sort of, you know, as the meme says, money printer go burr. And um, I think policymakers would really like to let some of the froth out. I think I think objectively they have, right? I mean, the fact that Bitcoin's at 39,000 and not 69,000, some of the froth is gone. Uh, but it's all fun and games letting froth out until the treasury market starts to get threatened. And the treasury markets, you know, tying back to our initial point, you know, the deepest, most liquid market in the world. There's an article last week that liquidity is not really good again, uh, kind of like what we saw in March of 2020. So, you know, I sort of talked around a bit on that. I, I ultimately just look at, at at Bitcoin as a neutral reserve asset, um, as a true, you know, as the last functioning smoke alarm of what's happening uh, as a good liquidity indicator. Um, and I use it as such. Am I right in taking from what you say that it's, um, you see it, you don't see a scenario in which we start looking at Bitcoin as an actual currency because it doesn't function as a currency right now, and no. except maybe in a couple places in the world. But 
um, right now it's, you know, store of value, digital gold, whatever else. Is, is that where it remains? Or is there a scenario in your mind where things get so bad that people besides Clay Thompson and these other athletes are going to ask to be paid in Bitcoin going forward? I don't think it, I, to me, it's just a neutral reserve asset, right? It's just, you know, instead of, I mean, it's, it's, it's buying digital real estate instead of, you know, saving your wealth in your house. Um, you know, it's digital gold. It's a digital neutral reserve asset. Um, now I, I don't think it ever becomes a currency. Um, if functionally, why would you ever want to pay for anything in Bitcoin? Setting aside all of the technical back office, all of the sort of, you know, mechanical issues with it. You it's, it's, why would you ever pay in an appreciating or in a finite asset when you can mm -hmm. pay in, in a, depreciating fiat currency and that's ultimately why the government you know government hates it right or dislikes it a lot of policymakers certainly um you know because look through paper gold they can control the release valve of the system right of, of gold but mm -hmm. the the un there's no unallocated london bitcoin market like there is for gold and so it is it's painting a truer picture of what they're doing uh, you know when when they're loosening and when they're tightening yeah. so no i don't i don't see it as being a currency, not not for any relevant investable time frame, but it's a digital reserve asset in my view. Um, all right, so kind of last last leg here before I let you go. Um, I, we've had a lot of doom and gloom. There's a war about. I, you know, everybody's afraid about inflation. Let's try and be optimistic for a second. We we mentioned a little bit, you know, Latin America, maybe emerging markets. But is there anywhere that you're optimistic? Anywhere that you're bullish? Anywhere that you would tell folks to kind of look in context of some of the risks that you've painted here on the horizon for us? I, I I really like commodities. I really like uh, ag, electric vehicles, um, you know, electric vehicle related metals, uh, copper. Um, you know, there's 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 a, there's sort of a, a a peak cheap energy story there. There's an energy transition story there. Um, and I think a really underappreciated inflation story, secularly, right? We can't, we 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 frequently hear that demographics. When you get you know you get a lot of old people, it's bad for growth. Um, to oversimplify, and I think largely that's true. But I think there's a nuance here, particularly in America, and I, I'm not as well versed in and uh, how these schemes are set up overseas. So they might be there too, but I know in America. The baby boomers have called it thirty-five trillion dollars in wealth, and you know, thirty-five trillion dollars in wealth uh, in assets estimated. Um, they have spent the last two years inside their houses watching main, you know, network news, scaring the shit out of them that they're going to die way sooner than they thought. And so you're seeing just sort of you've seen it in real estate, you see it in you know uh, restaurants, you see it in a lot of different hints. The boomers have 35 trillion wealth. The boomers are long money, they're long assets, and they're short time. And so, you know, you go to a tradesman, and it's like they they almost don't care what the price is. Hey, you know, this is going to cost you 50% more when I quote you. Don't care. Do it. Start tomorrow. Uh, you talk to architects. Don't care. Start tomorrow. When can you start? Right. Um, and so, I think this is it turns the whole lots of old people's deflationary right on its head. I think what's really going to be is the United States ran all these policies. We ran all these deficits. And part of the way we sterilize these deficits from showing up as CPI inflation that would have freaked out the bond market because we spent the last 40 years 
catering to the bond market like it's a spoiled child, um, <laughs> we, we sterilize this stuff in the asset markets, right? So we, we didn't have CPI inflation so that the bond market would, you know, we could borrow cheaply to, to you know, do, do dumb things in the Middle East. But what we did in doing this is we had this incredible asset price inflation. And the asset price inflation is like critically important to fund the tax receipts. So the Fed's going to help keep that number up. And so it's basically, you know, people say, well, the, 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 the Fed is not handing money to the people. They're just keeping asset prices up. Well, you got 30, what is it, 70 million boomers, 60 million boomers that have $35, million, or $35 trillion and are short time and are, are now worried they might not live as long as they thought they were. And they've got the Fed basically like giving them a printing press. It's like, hey, we want to go buy a house. Okay, buy a house. Okay, now we need our, you know, okay, run it back up to where it was, right? So it's this sterilization of inflation throughout most of the boomers' lives that took place through the asset markets is now coming out into the CPI markets as they get old. And as they, you know, hey, I already have three houses. What do I do? I've got all this money. I've got a a minimum, you know, required minimum distribution. What do I buy? Hey, Sonny, here's $100,000 I'm going to buy, put down on this house for you and your wife and your, my grandson, because I love you. And that's, that's what any of us would do. But I think there's this really interesting dynamic of, um, look, it's probably really good for the housing market in the U.S. I think we're seeing signs of that, right, where, um, you know, it, th- there's probably an opportunity there where, you know, housing has gotten killed because of rates. Um, you know, just on sort of the typical trade that maybe housing doesn't react to rates the way it has as a result of this, that there's better consumer spending growth than people think. Um, so that's, you know, I think, you know, and I think it's all, I think it's more inflationary than people think. I think it's good for some of these, for, for commodities and, and, um, uh, where there's sort of this secular, secular story away from this balance of payments issue that's sort of, you know, looming in the corner. Yeah. I'm always on the lookout for arguments that falsify ideas about demography because i find the fact that everybody says everybody talks about demographics like it's really simple that oh if you have the nice curve everything is great but if you're olding everything is going to be terrible well actually if if you're able to grow or if your growth is shrinking less fast than maybe your population is shrinking could actually be a net benefit one of my favorite examples of this is that um germany's demographics in the early 1930s were terrible they're absolutely awful. Everybody was saying the Germans, and it was because of World War One, and because they were getting older, and they they had just industrialized. And you know, within five to eight years, they almost took over all of Europe, <laughs> and they had this massive war machine, this massive economy. It was completely screwed up, and it was terrible for everybody. But if you had been there in 1933 with your oh, the demographic situation is not good in Germany; they're going to collapse. You would have gotten it completely wrong. So. Um, I, I actually really like what you're doing there with that idea because you're saying that the combination of the pandemic and this asset appreciation maybe is um, making demographics not as relevant maybe for, especially for, for Americans as a result of the boomer generation. Am I, am I taking it too far or? or, or no, I-, I think that's right. I mean, you've basically taken inflation that should have happened from, you know, uh, 19, you know, 85 through 2005 or 2010 in the CPI world and actually have just moved it right transposed it you 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 built a c you, you built an asset inflation bubble to sterilize what would have been a cpi inflation bubble and now you've you're you're it's going to come out of the cp it's going to come out of the uh the asset bubble into their asset inflation you know, bucket i should say into the cpi inflation bucket is 
as people want to spend on stuff before they die. Well, and it's even crazier to think about because you, you mentioned about offshoring industrial policy, which also means that that generation got to pay much less for the goods that they were buying before. So they were saving more in the first place. And now that we're in a globalization recession and everybody wants to nearshore and reshore, and they just assume that <laughs> the prices of consumer products aren't going to go up, that everything's going to be fine, but they're not. If you have to rebuild supply chains and pay people more and find all of these redundancies, and there's not going to be one country like China that does everything. Um, so not only have they been in that environment, they but they were also in an environment where you know, iPhones only cost a couple hundred bucks. Like if you actually manufacture an iPhone start to finish in the United States, I don't know how much it would be, $10,000? I mean, it's... <laughs> and it's still a deal. That's the crazy thing, right? It would yeah. still be an incredible deal, right? I mean, it's, I, would you pay 10000 for your phone? I would pay 10000 for my phone in a second. There's I songs would, on my phone I would pay $1,000 for. I would pay $10,000 for someone to throw my phone into a fiery inferno. <laughs> I never have to see it again. Uh, but uh, but I got to make a little, I got to make a little more boomer money before I can get rid of my phone. Uh, that's not going to happen right, quite right. Um, Luke, before I let you go, uh, just want what haven't I asked you that you think I should have or or what am I missing or or what's what's an important thing that I I didn't hit you on or if we hit everything that's fine too but i always like to close with asking people if i if i missed anything or if there's anything on top of your mind that you want to close out with no i th i think you really hit you know to your to you know you, to your credit you did a great job i think really digging in on what i i think is the biggest issue is this this u.s fiscal situation right like it's i i'm told in the 60s and 70s every major wall street bank had at least one u.s balance of payments analyst uh <laughs> and that became a, a useless job you know, by the 80s, because U.S. deficits didn't matter, right? It was uh, that's sort of the, the the way the system worked. Deficits didn't matter, um, and you always fight the last war. Generals fight the last war. Investors fight the last war, right? Or fight, you know, we're looking for the last crisis. And so, you know, going into the you know going into the '08 crisis, there were like three people on the planet who understood the repo market, even knew it existed, right? But you know, and you know. I'm told by guys that were in sort of looking at, you know, the, the, the really in the financials is like, oh, the banks are all fine. As long as you, you know, if you X out the bilateral repo book, then they're really under levered. Well, of course, X the bilateral repo book, the bilateral, that's where all the problems were, right? Now, fast forward to today, you know, there's a lot more people and that's not saying anything uh, uh, derogatory toward them. There's, there's a lot more people who know what the repo market is. They've heard of it. There was a repo rate spike. There was a crisis there, right? So that, that, but nobody's talking about balance of payments. Nobody, even though if you look at markets through a balance of payments lens, through the U.S. balance of payments lens, it's been very, very useful, right? When the Fed's tightening, you know, or, or isn't loosening enough, forget about tightening. If the Fed's not loosening enough, it's dollar up, emerging markets down, it's, it's you know, tighter financial conditions, it's more volatility, and vice versa, right? So there's this, I, I think... By the end of this cycle, in the next five, 10 years, I think you're going to start having U.S. balance of payments again. And, and again, it ties into the geopolitical where, look, we're watching, I think, you know, I think if we look out in five years, um, 10 years, two years, we're going to look back at, at two nights ago or at yesterday as the death of Pax Americana. I think that was the end of the post-war Pax Americana. Um, I think that was sort of the that's that's the that's the date they'll put on the gravesite of of globalization 2.0. Um, you know, you're going to need to rebuild supply chains, like you were just saying, all this stuff. You know, and and that has a bunch of other implications, right? The 40-year bond market, you know, disinflationary bond market bull. Like, 
if you're if you've got to rebuild if globalization 2.0 is over 40-year bond market bulls over now it doesn't mean i wouldn't go out short bonds tomorrow but um on a real basis, I would, right? It speaks to more, hey, I'd rather own gold and Bitcoin than, you know, a portfolio of 10-year treasuries at 2%, um, that kind of thing. So I think there's, I, I think we're right in, um, I would say, in between true tra- two trapezes almost, right? Where we're leaving sort of this world of the last 40 years and this, it's been pretty obvious to me over the last five, seven years that we're moving out of that world. And I think, you know, it's always these things where, I mean, it's like Lenin said, right, where there's there's decades where nothing happens and weeks where decades happen. I think this week was one of those weeks where decades happen, where all of a sudden people are going to realize, and I think they're realizing right now, it's it's happening. I don't think people know what they're seeing yet. But when the United States Treasury is like, well, we can sanction the Mariushka dolls <laughs> and, you know. But we got to, you know, we got to, the Italians want to take out the Gucci loafers and the Belgians want to get rid of the diamonds and, and we can't do oil and we can't do energy. And the treasury document today said there's wood, wood, they're qualifying wood exports as energy out of Russia, right? Like they are, there. okay, that's a change. And I don't think people have really grasped that because of, A, I don't think the context is there for what's happening in terms of some of these changes, multilateral, fiscal, et cetera. But I also think, too, like we started off talking about, it's the fog of war. Um, I think there's there's a lot of things happening that you don't really know what they are until you get some appropriate distance from them and can kind of go, wow, that was a really significant thing. Yeah. Well, this was so much fun, and I hope you'll come back maybe in a couple months and we can see what's happened once the fog dispels. But Luke, thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, okay? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Jacob. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.